Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Ronnie Quinn. This week, inflation and the bear market. We'll speak with Barry Riddles and Nir Kesar. And later... It would be very helpful to know who was on the side of things that really should not be involved in mainstream politics anymore. Jonathan Bernstein on the continuing January 6th hearings. First to the markets and whether earnings season will reflect the confusion in economic and Fed forecasting. Let's get straight to Barry Riddles. Okay, so it's been an interesting first half, Barry. To say the very least. And yet it seems to be pretty quiet, almost dull at this point. Well, the question is how much of the bad news is already reflected in stock prices. Hey, look at the second quarter. The S&P down 16 percent, Russell 2000 down 22 percent, Nasdaq down 23 percent. Those are epic numbers. You have to go back to the COVID pandemic quarter, to the great financial crisis and to the dot-com implosion to find quarters that bad since the 1987 crash. So this is up there with the worst quarters we've seen. It was really quite phenomenal. And yet now it feels like the market is frozen. And I don't mean literally frozen. I just mean people, they're waiting to see what's going to happen in terms of the economy, in terms of the Federal Reserve. They're not putting money to work, it feels like. So we're waiting on when the Federal Reserve will recognize that peak inflation has passed. When we look at a lot of data points in copper, commodities, oil, Wages are slowing down. Home sales. There's lots of evidence that that big surge in inflation we saw in 2021 into 2022 has peaked. But we've had 24 or 25 consecutive days of gasoline prices falling. Mm. Oil is back under 100 from 120. Copper down 30 percent. Industrial metals down 40 percent. Lumber cut in half. From yes. really, And we've actually seen the Mannheim used car index. Remember, Inflation first reared its head in, With used in cars, cars mm. because you couldn't get new cars because semiconductor production had lagged and was so delayed in opening. Now we're seeing a pretty substantial decrease in used cars from admittedly very inflated levels. So once we get under that eight handle on CPI, if it's seven or heaven forbid six in the coming months, I think that will let the Fed realize they've slowed the economy enough They've already seen inflation roll over and maybe a more moderate set of increases, 25 or 50 basis points instead of 75, will continue to pressure inflation, but without causing a full-blown economic crash and recession. Well, so this is it. Are recession expectations overdone? Almost nobody I speak to isn't expecting a recession. They're not expecting it immediately. It might be 12 to 18 months out. Is that because there are supply chain concerns further out? So first, 18 to 24 months is, is just so far off in the future. Mm. It's, you know, it, it's make-believe. It might as be 20 years off. Because uh, when we look at the year-ahead forecast, just what Wall Street does for the economy, for the stock market, nobody gets it right. 12 months is forever. 
18 is a, a whole nother lifetime. Mm. When we talk about the supply chains, some really interesting data points, we're seeing the transit times for international shipping have fallen pretty substantially. The backlog at ports and the time to ship has fallen. And we also are seeing the um, shipping containers, which pre-pandemic cost about $2,000 to ship from China to Europe or, or the United States, spiked up to 20000 and has since more than been cut in half to about 8000 It's still much higher than when it was, but it's less than half of, of the peak. So that suggests that the shipping and demand for goods is sort of normalizing. And keep in mind, as we get more and more infectious but less dangerous variations of COVID, people are, are moving. Remember, we're primarily a services-based mm-hmm. economy. During the lockdown, hey, we didn't go on vacation. We bought all this junk. We bought televisions. We expanded our houses. All these goods purchases put real stress on the supply system. And so we end up with things starting to get back to normal. It's not a surprise to see that drop I'm not in the recession camp. We're certainly not in a recession today. You it don't... feels like the economy is booming. Listen, you just added 2.74 million jobs in the first half of the year. Wages have gone up about 5.4%. The bottom half of the wage pool, the bottom quartile, is up about 6%. Mm. Consumer spending year over year is up about 5%. Uh, the only place we're really seeing an economic slowdown has been in housing from admittedly very elevated levels, four months in a row of decreased existing home sales during the season where home sales typically go up. Home sales bottom around December, January, and they go up throughout the beginning of the calendar year and they peak in July and August. To see that negative is telling you that increased mortgage rates and the ongoing big price increases have discouraged buyers. But other than housing, which is more of an inventory problem than anything else— the rest of the economy looks pretty robust. The midterms, how are they going to impact what gets done? The president obviously wants people to stop talking about inflation or to at least not vote on inflation because there are so many other issues to vote on. What can he do? So first, I'm not a political analyst, mm-hmm. and, and I try not to make political forecasts because of all the terrible forecasts people make. But that's one sort of objective make. thing that we can say, right. no matter who would be in the presidency. Right. Will he do anything, you think? Is there anything that uh, you know a sitting president can do? Uh, the problem is it's very difficult to do something about inflation as yeah. a president if you don't have the full cooperation of Congress. And and, when and you, even then, when it comes to actually inflation, it's hard to do something about it. Well, well, when it's, it's more these days of what you don't do than what you actually do. When you look at the impact of the CARES Act, mm-hmm. all three segments, the first one under President Trump was $2 trillion. It was unprecedented. It was 10 percent of GDP. The second one, also under Trump, was another $900 billion. And then Biden came into office and there was another $2 trillion. So... Really, the people to blame are Congress, who passed these giant spending bills. But both Trump and Biden put a lot of money into the system. And that's part of the reason we've seen prices go up. Consumers are out spending a lot of money. So Mm. once that toothpaste is out of the tube, I don't know how you get that back in other than dampening demand by cranking up rates. And the Fed seems to have accomplished that. So, Barry, let's talk about valuations. 
how are people valuing companies these days? How do they measure what the intrinsic value of a company is when clearly stock market valuations are just all over the place? So there are two key factors that drive valuation. One is just the basic math. What are the earnings, mm. right? Now, you could look at all sorts of other ways of measuring revenue growth and price to book and whatever, but really it all comes down to earnings. That's your starting point. And then the market will put some type of a multiple on earnings. And here's where investor psychology becomes so important. The multiple is really a function of everybody's collective consensus as to what investors should pay. Hey, how much are you going to pay for that dollar of earnings? And we see that this rises and falls with the market cycle. My favorite example, you start in the beginning of the 82 to 2000 bull market. The P ratio for the S&P 500 was 7x. And it ended at 32x. And so while the economy expanded and earnings grew over that 18-year period, three-quarters of the market gain was caused by multiple expansion. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we look at that and don't say this is a crazy delusion, this is a bubble, is the nature of corporate America has changed. Go back to the 70s, the era that led to that high inflation, low economic growth, and industry was big and costly. A lot of manpower, a lot of material, a lot of capital required. Compare that to, you know, the Instagram purchase by Facebook. The joke is a couple of guys on a laptop and it was sold for a billion dollars. The intangibles have not been measured correctly by investors for the past 20 years. And when you saw technology run up as much as it has over the past decade, a lot of that was those intangibles. That's everything from patents to copyright to business IP. methods to mm-hmm. algorithms. I think we've started to see intangibles be reflected in prices. Their value is starting to be recognized. So where do we go from here? We have a quarter coming up where earnings are not going to be all that exciting. They're going to be disappointing people. Well, that's the big question is, you know, we're, we've seen record high earnings over the past couple of years. We're still forecast for 2022 The consensus is a 10.6% gain in earnings. Some people think that's a little rich. We've seen a 20% correction in the S&P 500, but we haven't seen a correlated downgrade of earnings. I think we'll know really quickly, is the consensus estimates too high? P.S. Historically, they're always too high. Right. The analyst community always overestimate earnings the exception being in the nadir of recessions, they underestimate the mm. recovery. The odd thing about the past couple of years is the overly optimistic estimates of earnings turned out to be more or less dead on. Dead on. Well, the other thing is that there's going to be a bifurcation between companies that can pass down inflation problems and still hold on to their margins and the companies who can't. What, one of the things that I think the average investor doesn't often recognize is that stocks have long acted as an inflation hedge. Mm. And if that sounds counterintuitive, you know, if your input costs go up and there's still plenty of consumer demand for your products, you just pass along the price. Mm. So your revenues go up on a nominal basis, but they're going up because of inflation. Your earnings go up as inflation. The exception to that is when you can't pass along those increases in input costs So, you know, when we see 5% increases in consumer demand year over year, not only is corporate America as well set up in terms of their debt and balance sheet, but we look at household balance sheets. People are sitting on a couple of trillion dollars of cash. 
the average household is working. Most people have gotten pay raises. This isn't the standard situation that you see heading into a recession. This is a pretty robust expansion where unique circumstances caused by COVID-19, the pandemic, the lockdown, and then the reopening have caused a spike in inflation. As things start to normalize, we could have a pretty typical 2 2.5% GDP with 2% inflation in 23. Everybody is so focused on the change in the cost of capital and the increase in rates, they may be missing the optimistic picture, which is the economy is still fairly robust. How much is Russia's war in Ukraine lingering when it comes to the U.S. economy and particular U.S. stocks? So it's less of a factor in the U.S. than it is overseas, Mm. but it's a global market. So if Russia restricts their output, all those little bumper stickers on gas Mm. stations with Biden saying, I did that, it's a fair argument to say, Putin did that. Yeah. Before the war, oil prices were fairly elevated. They were. Then the war came in and tacked on another 30, 40 percent. So at the moment, you're painting a fairly rosy picture, which seems to jibe with what we're seeing. Well, rosy picture from down 20 percent. Right. Sure. Exactly. I was, uh, you know, it's easier to be rosy when the market has, Already you know, tanked. gone on sale a little bit. Yeah, exactly. But what could derail the market further? Of all of the scenarios you painted, there doesn't seem to be any kind of an event in there. So the biggest threat is a policy mistake by the Fed, and that means over tightening. It's not a fragile economy. But it's not a bulletproof economy either. So that's one issue. We would hate to see the Russian invasion of Ukraine spill into the rest of Europe. Mm. That could be really problematic. You never know what's going on in China. China's economy seems to be slowing much more than I think people were expecting. That's still impacting supply chains and and goods. We also have the stronger dollar, which doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And if anything, it's going to strengthen more. I I love the expression, the cleanest shirt and a hamper full of dirty laundry. Mm. Where else are you going to put your currency? The euro? Certainly not. The yen? Uh, Come Mm. on. Or or, or when, when we look at China's currency, the U.S. is clearly the best choice amongst those. And by the way, we've been hearing about the death of the dollar, I don't know, my whole adult lifetime. If you think the dollar is dead, you should go to Europe and and spend some time in Italy or Paris or wherever you like, and you'll see the purchasing power of the dollar remains very, very strong. Really strong. strong. Well, it's at parity now, basically, with the euro. Yeah, amazing. So honestly, everything you've just said makes me think the market's a buy. So the market is a buy if you have a time horizon of more than, you know, six to 12 months, because anything can happen in a Mm. given year. I think the concern is when will the Fed realize that we are past peak inflation, that their original take that inflation wasn't going to be sticky and it was going to be transitory turned out to be right. Just transitory took a lot longer than anyone expected. And that they've already done most of what they need to do, I hope. The Fed is aware of the fact that copper, metals, lumber, gas, oil, even housing and wages are either slowing their rate of increase or ticking downwards, in which case they should be a little more gentle. Barry Ritholtz there. Let's get to the January 6th hearings now. Hearing seven with another to come next Thursday. We're joined by Jonathan Bernstein. We seem to be getting a lot more details. And I mean, the gossip monger parts of us are very satisfied with what we're hearing out of the committee. What struck you as the most intense part of this week's hearing? Well, you know, they're just continuing to fill in the details of the basic story of, of, of 
you know, that Donald Trump was attempting to overturn the election and essentially overthrow the government of the United States. So, you know, each detail sort of adds to that without anything in particular really changing what we've actually known since January 6th itself. But, you know, it's increasingly clear that it was a deliberate plan, that he was deliberately trying to do this, and that he was calling on anybody who was willing to work with him, including these extremist organizations. Now, did it give the committee heft that Pat Cibolone and people like that did actually give testimony in the end? And do we need to hear from people like Steve Bannon? Part of this goes beyond my expertise, which is to the legal side of things and mm-hmm. exactly what is criminal and what kind of evidence would they need to, you know, make certain charges stick. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really speak to that. But the more evidence that they can get, and, and not just about Trump himself, but about, you know, other people who are active leaders of the Republican Party, whether they're members of the House or people who are in the administration who are still active leaders of the Republican Party, whatever happens to Donald Trump, it would be very helpful for us to know who was involved and to what level. Because, you know, as the committee has said, there's nothing wrong with pushing legitimate lawsuits to make sure that the president, that any candidate's case gets made in court if they think that there's something going on that they have rights to. What Trump did was something else, and it would be very helpful to know who was on the side of things that really should not be involved in mainstream politics anymore. Well, the other thing that we heard this week is that we heard from some members of some of these groups, like the Oath Keepers, for example. Does it take away some of their perceived power or their self-perceived power that light is being shed on how they operate? Yeah, I think that it's very helpful. You know, this is stuff that, you know, people who follow these things have known about for years, really. Um... But it's very helpful for the committee to shine some light on it, as you say. And These are dangerous groups. They are extremist groups. And one of the things that Donald Trump did that was so unusual was to treat them as legitimate parts of the party coalition. Mm. And once the president, once the leader of the party does that, it's very hard for the rest of the party to disengage, especially since there are some overlaps in policy positions or ideas. The Democrats have done a very good job on their side of keeping their distance from extremist groups. They had, Democrats didn't always do that. In the 70s, there was, there was that kind of problem. But that problem is mostly on the Republican side now, that they just find it very difficult to exclude people who, you know, are not supportive of democracy. And who are giving the party attention. Biden was asked on his Middle East trip about a 2024 rematch with the former president. Say there is no prosecution and that the former sitting president doesn't see any sort of consequences from the hearings or the Justice Department doesn't do anything. Will he run again? Well, you know, there's a political scientist who says we can talk about who is running for 2024 and then we can talk about who's running in 2024. As of right now, Donald Trump is running for president. As of right now, Joe Biden is running for a second term. In both cases, we just can't really predict whether that will still be the case. We can say with some certainty that if Biden eventually makes it to 2024, he would almost certainly win the nomination. If there's such strong opposition to seeking a second term, he'll probably drop out sometime in the next, I don't know, 10 months or so. As far as Trump is concerned, he's much less predictable because he doesn't listen to people. Mm. Um, So 
it's it's certainly possible that he could run and win the nomination. It's possible he could run and lose the nomination. It's possible that he could drop out of running entirely. There's just no way of really predicting what goes on in his head. Well, and you have to wonder about Ron DeSantis. What are you hearing behind the scenes, Jonathan, about whether Ron DeSantis could overtake Trump as a party favorite? Oh, I don't hear anything. Uh, no, but of course. What not. I can say is that it's very, very early, and DeSantis has has had a lot of support in Republican-aligned media. You know, he gets mentioned a lot, which has successfully meant for him that he now shows up in polls doing double digits or better in Republican early polls of the 2024 nomination. But, you know, we've seen a lot of candidates, whether it's Rudy Giuliani or whoever, um, have early leads that dissipated once we find out who the actual candidates that are entering the primaries are and once the candidates get tested by going through the process. Jonathan Bernstein there. Don't forget, do get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Vonnie Quinn or email vquinn at Bloomberg.net. Opinions and comments always welcome. By the way, we're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy to be joined now by Nir Kesar to continue our look at this bear market, what it signifies, how long it may last and what you should know if it's your first. So earlier I spoke with Barry Rittles and we were talking about how robust the economy is. In subsequent hours, suddenly 100 basis points is on the table from the Federal Reserve. Is 100 basis points necessary? Well, I was curious how the economy is doing. I was looking at the numbers today. And from what I can tell, the latest estimate from the Bureau of Economic Analysis is that uh, is that the economy contracted by about 1.6% in the first quarter. And the latest estimate from Atlanta Fed is that it contracted an additional 1.2%. This is all after inflation in the second quarter. If that's the case, then we have two consecutive quarters of negative real growth. We're technically in a recession now. But I don't know that that's the end of the analysis, because to the extent that there's a silver lining in this, even though the inflation number today was bad, there's no question about that. If you look at what the market is expecting, the five-year break-even rate has declined from roughly 3.5% in the spring to close to 2.5% now. And the 10-year break-even has declined over the same period from roughly 3% to 2.3%. So, I mean, the market at least believes that the worst of inflation is over, at least for now. And that might mean that whatever the Fed has done so far, plans to do, which is probably another 200 basis points between now and next year, and all the tough talk in the meantime, might have been enough to, uh, to bring this inflation under control, even though it's not apparent in this moment. And if that's the case, we might have escaped with a relatively mild recession, which was the point, I think, to begin with. You know, if I had told you that that was going to be the worst of it, I think we all would have been happy with that result. It's too early to say, obviously, but as far as I can tell, that's the base case. Well, and that's the thing. If the Fed does go 100 basis points, is that enough to derail an economy that's pretty robust, but as Barry Rittall said earlier, not bulletproof? I don't think any more than where it is now, because I think ultimately the question is, what are we digesting in terms of our expectations? I think people are pretty morose about inflation. I'm not sure that the the print changed really any of that. And if you look at expectations in the futures markets, I mean, you see that, you know, markets are expecting a Fed funds rate of roughly 340 basis points this time next year, roughly, let's say June of next year. 
And so I think, you know, market participants, the economy in general, businesses, I think they've all calibrated for that number. And the question is, will there be a surprise from there? All of that is to say, I don't know that the path matters so much as the destination. Mm. Whether they give us 200 more basis points, you know, with two 100 basis point hikes or with four 50 basis point hikes, I'm not sure that matters so much. I think the question is, will they move off the destination? And in that regard, I think there's a higher probability of a surprise to the upside than to the downside. So then we get into your column, which says that a bear market at the moment is a first for so many. Just give us the synthesized version of your thesis, Nir. Well, you know, I've been reflecting on the fact that, you know, we have all these trading apps that didn't exist several years ago and that millions of new investors have come to markets in the pandemic. Uh, some of them before the pandemic, but a lot of them in the pandemic. There's been a lot of stories about that. And it seems to me that a lot of them are navigating a bear market for the first time. Mm. And I was sort of reflecting on my first bear market, which was the mm. dot-com bust from 2000 to 2002. And there are things that I just didn't, you know, even though I was a business student as an undergrad and I was told these things in the classroom, there are a lot of things that I just didn't, I don't think I really realized until I experienced it for the first time. So give us a little bit of a rundown of a couple of these mistakes that they don't have to make that you might have made. Yeah, right. Okay. You know, one is listening to prognosticators. One of the things that I think... <laughs> Which is, is what we're hoping they're doing right now. Everyone. Well, yes, yes. And I think we should all acknowledge that, you know, none of us have any ability to know where the market's going. I mean, we're in the seventh month of the bear market. You know, it's getting long in the tooth. But when it ends, how low stocks will go, we just have no model, economic model, to be able to say that. Mm. The problem is during a bear market, people want those answers. And so they're inviting that kind of prognostication. And what I would say to them is it's fine to listen to this stuff as entertainment. But just don't make any financial decisions based on it because ultimately no one knows where it's going. The second lesson I would highlight is that I think when you're a new investor, you don't realize how vulnerable companies are in general. I was reflecting on the fact that Enron and WorldCom disappeared during the dot-com bust, that GE never really regained its luster after that. And so for, for folks who are coming to the market for the first time and buying their favorite stocks and thinking that it's going to you know, it's going to be a sure bet for them. It's it's nothing. It's nothing even close. Right. And there's something different about every bear market. Obviously, the reasons for the bear market differ, depending on, you know, which bear market we're talking about. But there's sure. really very little that's the same about one bear market as another. Well, that's one of the difficulties, right, is that uh, how the bear market behaves, to some extent, is going to depend on the input. What are we fighting? You know, the last bear market was very short. We were fighting a pandemic. Um, this time we're fighting inflation and a slowing economy and lots of economic challenges, et cetera. And so they're all going to have different tenors. However, I would say that there is a common denominator running through them, which is that in general, during a bear market, you have a repricing of assets. And the more expensive the asset you own, the more vulnerable you are to repricing. So, you know, during the dot-com bust, famously, that was probably the most expensive U.S. stock market in U.S. history when that recession came. And some will say it was even caused by that, by asset prices being too high. There was a lot of room for repricing. And in fact, they did reprice. In that regard, this one looks, looks, it's not exactly the same, but this market is still very expensive. And there's a lot of room for a lot of stocks to reprice. And in that regard, I think you sort of have to watch that as a common denominator of all bear markets. Well, and that is one interesting thing. You do see a lot of growth stocks, a lot of tech companies that have repriced more than just into a bear market. I mean, some of them are 30% lower or more. Is there any conviction out there that they might reprice back at least a little bit to where they were? You know, Vani, this is one of the things I touch on in this column for tomorrow, 
is that famously the market has no memory of price. It doesn't really care what you paid for a stock. Mm. So, for example, if you paid $700, let's just say, for Netflix, which was the high, I believe, and now it's down 70%, that doesn't mean it's going to come back to $700. So I don't think we can look at these stocks and say just because it's down 30, 50, 70 or whatever, it's coming back. I think the best that we can say is that, in general, the broad market is going to recover. It's going to regain its previous level. and It's going to reach new highs. What happens to individual companies is anyone's guess, which is why I think betting on these individual companies and worse, hanging on to whatever price you bought is a big mistake. So it's very interesting that you point out that some of these companies didn't exist or were defrauding customers or just looked different after the last bear market. Do you anticipate that that happens after every bear market, including this one? I think investors do tend to pay more close attention during downturns, which is understandable. You know, when you're making money, you tend to get lazy and you tend to not care as much. When you start losing money, you want to know why and you start looking under yeah. the under the hood, so to speak. And, you know, when investors do that, I mean, they find that some companies are not exactly above board. And that's invariably another common denominator in these downturns is that shenanigans come to light. The only question is, what is the extent of them and who is committing them? I mean, the, the, the bigger the company that is committing them, the more likely it is to end in a catastrophic way for that company and the investors just merely on the scale of it. But, yeah, I, I'm sure that if this goes on any longer, we're going to we're going to find out some things we didn't know. Well, it's funny, but you just put crypto into my mind. I'm not quite sure why I associate the two, but I guess we have seen some shenanigans in the crypto space of the market already. And I think we'll see more. I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting about crypto is it comes in the long line of new assets and there's real there's history there, right? I mean, when junk bonds came to the fore in the late 1970s and 1980s, and they had their first wipeout, there were a lot of shenanigans that came to light. Anytime that a new asset comes to the scene, you know, and a lot of money is being made, I think people are not as careful as they ought to be, and that invites all kinds of bad behavior. Of course, there's always some correction, all of that comes to light, but I think crypto is just the latest in the long tradition of new assets that are going to have to deal with, um, with, with behavior that is not necessarily above board across, you know, all around. Yeah. Nir, there's some hope here as well for people too, though, right? I mean, if you're going to start investing, investing in a bear market is is better than not in some ways. Is that always true? I think it's pretty much always true. I, one of the things that I uh, say in this column is that, you know, in general, when prices are going down is the time you want to be buying. A lot of people, their instinct, I think, is to hold off, is mm. to wait, or worse, to sell what they own on the theory that they'll wait till things get better and then they'll buy back in or resume investing. In my opinion, that is a big mistake because you won't know when the bear market is over until the new bull market commences. And in general, the bull market comes in with a bang, yeah. meaning the market really turns sharply higher to announce a new bull market, which means that you end up buying at higher prices than you otherwise would have if you just had to continue buying through the bear market. So I view all bear markets as buying opportunities, assuming that you you invest regularly through it, very similar to the way you would do in a, in a bull market. So, Nir, having already given the caveat that you shouldn't listen to prognosticators, is there anything else that you would tell people out there? Well, I would tell them to just focus on the long term and to just keep in mind that no matter how bad the, the, the news gets, no matter how long the bear, mark, uh, bear market lasts, and, you know, it could last several years. I mean, it's happened before. They end. They always end. And ultimately, you know, most people are not investing for two or three years. They're investing for five, 10, 20 years. 
Time is on their side. There's really no reason for them to be concerned, assuming that they're investing intelligently. They're buying regularly and investing in the broad market. There's really no reason to worry much, in my view. Near case are there. We are now choosing to end all conversations, not with you, though. As always, we love to hear from you. I'm at Vonnie Quinn on Twitter, or send your thoughts to vquinn at Bloomberg.net. We're produced by Eric Mollo. Till next time on Bloomberg Opinion.